Well, the context of our scriptural passage for my sermon this morning is a church in trouble. They're in trouble because they're nearing going off the rails with not only what's happening internally, but they're also in danger of going off the rails and and ruining the witness that they have. You think of a, a normal, hopefully regular, healthy church, it is not only to serve God within itself, but also it serves as a as a beacon or a light to an outside world. So the Apostle Paul, who, who knows and loves the people of this church, writes to Timothy, and he, and he tells Timothy to stay in this church. He says, stay there in that church and help correct them. Use your influence in order to correct this church around you. Now, I think what's amazing about this book in particular, 1 Timothy, is is Paul's regular and continual message about particulars. He is regularly reminding people around him through certain things, but there's kind of this overarching theme that goes throughout this book. There's the regular reminders of the gospel, where the good news of Christ fulfilling Scripture is his message to save his people for the forgiveness of their sins. Maybe to put it more clearly, what Paul sends to help this church, to help them grow in understanding, to help them grow in their witness, is not more rules, but actually clarification of the very gospel that they said they believed. Now, we have to recognize that the gospel is, you think of it, the gospel is for Christians. Oftentimes, we think the gospel is for people outside of Christ, but in reality, scripturally, the gospel is for Christians to believe and to continue to believe, to hold on to for the rest of their lives. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, that when we use the term gospel, or when we sing about the gospel, or when we are thankful for the gospel, you have to realize that it's, it's not only something that was brought to us by God and His grace, but also something that regularly fills us. The reminder that we were wandering, that we were astray, that we were pursuing sin in our own lives. And, and in reality, finding ourselves in bondage to that very sin. The gospel is the freeing message that in Christ we can be freed from the, the penalty of sin, from the pressure of that sin on top of us, and in relying on Christ to forgive us of our sins that not only saves us, but also it, it fuels us for the life ahead. Now, I think it's helpful to recognize, and, and I'm speaking to me here and my own heart, as well as hopefully you and your own heart, that fighting the flesh or pursuing righteousness in our lives, not to earn God's love, but to enjoy the freedom that we have over the power of sin. There's a lot in that statement there, but fighting the flesh, pursuing Christ, not only keeps us in a state of joy with a clean conscience, which produces love, our passage will say, but also it actually serves to advance through witness that the transforming power of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So us pursuing holiness not only allows us to enjoy the life that we have, but also it serves as a witness to the outside world that what we have been given is all that we need. If we're in Christ we don't, and we don't pursue Christ, wisdom from Scripture says that this actually makes us miserable. So if we find ourselves in Christ, yet, yet grind against the Spirit or pursue sin, Scripture says, friend, that's just going to make you miserable in life. Like, like a drunk knowingly asking for another drink, and another, and another. He knows. He knows he's not happy. But the joy of Christ is that he frees us from the enslavement of sin and fuels us. And if we not bind the Spirit to a, to a lifestyle of joy and happiness. So, so this church in Ephesus, the context of this, is acting up, 
and is being taught false things or is being taught ill truth. So last week I approached the text and asked you, what do you, the church, do with false teaching? The answer from the first couple of verses, from verses 3 and 4, was a clear, you confront false teaching. You confront false teachers. But what do you do when you're standing there proudly confronting them? What do you say? You know, do you punch them in the face? No. Do you argue with them endlessly? What do you do when you're facing false teachers? So today from verses 5 through 7, I think the text is clear in telling you that in the face of false teachers, in the face of false teaching, you seek to persuade them. And then second, you, you seek to understand what's really going on here. So last week, I intended to get through three points that I didn't get to. This week, I'll pick up on points two and three. So if you're using an outline in the bulletin that's been provided for you, that's not a typo where it starts at at point number two and then point number three. There are two points, point two, point three. Those should logically go together with last points, point one. So what do you do when you're standing there facing false teaching? Paul's words for Timothy and the Ephesians or even for us today, a helpful warning and instruction. The second thing you do when you face false teachers is in verse 5, you persuade them. You seek to persuade them. Look at verse 5. I'll read it out loud again. It says, But the goal or aim of our command is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith or sincere faith. Now, if you have a a copy of the ESV, this uses the term that the aim of our charge the aim of our charge are these things, and then he lists these things. The word there means to command, the command of what we're going at here, the aim, the pursuit of what we're going towards. Paul says that there is a purpose, there is a goal to this command, and he speaks about this as a charge or as an instruction. Now, a natural follow-up to this is, what is he talking about when he says the aim of our charge and then lists these things? What is he referring to here? And why is there a word our? Well, there's no word in the Greek that correlates directly with our word, our. You might think of our house or our university or our town. There's nothing that that correlates directly with that. So it's our charge, our instruction, on and on. But literally, it's the goal of the instruction, the goal of the charge. There There is a truth. There is a charge. There is an instruction. Now, what's he talking about? Look at verse 3. Gaze up with your eyes at verse 3. I think the text lends itself to show that what he's referring to is actually what he previously talked about in verse 3, where Paul tells Timothy to instruct, command, charge these certain men, these false teachers, not to teach false doctrine. He's specifically speaking of the false teachers Timothy is to address, and Paul is saying that Timothy's command to these false teachers has a purpose, and that purpose, our goal, is instruction with love, with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, Paul here is saying that there's a reason he wants Timothy to rebuke these false teachers. Paul wants the teachers to be rebuked, to be corrected, and the action of this is actually to take them back to the gospel root of love. Yes, he wants to to protect the flock, but Paul also has the goal of producing love in the hearts of these teachers who are in air. So you can think of it as they're teaching outside the camp or they're outside the boundaries. And the goal in this, the loving thing to do, is to draw them back in or persuade them to a point of a pure conscience or sincere faith. He wants the love to come from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And what he means by that, a pure heart is a heart that has been washed by the Spirit of God in regeneration. A good conscience, 
is a heart that's walking in the Spirit's guidance. Uh, sincere faith. You might think, what would, it, what would it be like to have a sincere faith? A sincere faith is a heart that's by the Spirit, a heart that's trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. He's saying they are erring in these things. They, they find themselves with a conscience that is bound. They find themselves outside of a sincere faith. They find these, you know, it, themselves in this fruit that comes from a lack of love. Not, not the love that you might have where you let someone go first in an aisle, but the lack of love in that they don't have a love for Christ. They've taken their, their affections off of the object of what they once saw as their faith. Or in other words, Timothy is to rebuke the false teachers in hopes that they might be persuaded by truth once again to bear the first fruit of the Spirit, love. If you've got a good conscience, if you've got a pure heart, if you have a sincere faith, that's a description of someone who has the very Spirit of God. And what's the first fruit of someone who has the very Spirit of God? Love. What can you count on if someone is going outside of the bounds of faith and even teaching other people that they, that they lack that first fruit of what they're supposed to be aiming at? So here's what I think is important in application for all of us. Think of this, think of this personally, like you yourself, Christian. But then also think of this corporately, like us together, Cross Point Church, gathering around one another for the exaltation of Christ Jesus. Think of this as you and us. If you love the truth less, think of this, if you love the truth less than being known as right or wrong, if you love the truth less than pleasing people, then you may not be up for this type of confrontation. Let me reverse those. If you, if you love truth more than being right or wrong, if you are seen as being right or wrong, if you love the truth more than pleasing people, then your goal in criticism or your rebuke against false teachers is actually you loving them, even in rebuke, with the very gospel. It's one thing to want to be seen as being right in an argument. It's one thing to be seen as, or fear being seen as being wrong. But the point that Paul is writing to Timothy to write to this church to say, the point of this is the exaltation of God's truth. That ought to be the goal of that. Don't worry about being right. Don't worry about if they think that you're wrong. Go for the truth here. And that is actually rooting them back in love. You think about that corporately. What is the role of us as Crosspoint Church? Whatever particulars you and I might have of however we function or whenever we gather, the aim of all of us corporately is to say, what is truth and how can we pursue that when we worship? Or you think about that privately, whatever circumstance God has placed you in, what is truth and how, how can I go out that? Regardless of how I might be seen, you might be one of those crazy Christians, according to people in your neighborhood. You get up on a Sunday morning and go worship God. How strange. One of my best friends uh, spent about four years in Orlando after college, and he said he, he grew up in uh, Tulsa, North Tulsa, so the culture there, you know, 15, 20 years ago, the, tol- the culture there was people went to church. And then he moved to Orlando, and no one went to church. Like the best day to drive around on the roads in Orlando is Sunday morning at like 1030. So he would, he would meet a girl and ask her to coffee or talk to her. What is she doing this weekend? And she would say, what are you doing this weekend? And he'd say, well, Saturday, blah, blah, blah. But then I'm going to church on Sunday morning. And she said, I remember one time, she said, you go to church on Sunday morning? And he's like, when else would you go to church? And what else would you do on Sunday morning? But you have, to, you have to remember that it's not that he wants to be seen as respected to her or even seen as like, wow, what a strange person. I want to 
aspire to something that's strange. The, the pursuit of his heart was aspiring to truth and let the chips fall as they might be. And what Timothy is being told by Paul is go to these people who are falsely teaching and not just change maybe their particulars to your particulars. Don't just change their preference to your preference. Don't just go in there and say, hey, I like how things were here or I want things to be different. No, Timothy, go in there and draw them to the truth of the gospel and let the chips fall wherever they are. The goal Paul is is presenting here is it's not about you and it's not about me being seen as right or wrong, but the goal then is God's truth being upheld for the sake of nourishment and protection of the church, that that God's kingdom would be promoted through the church's witness, that God's people would be sought and strengthened. That's the aim whenever we see false teaching creep into a church, or that's positively you think of it, that's the aim of whenever we go into a Sunday school, a Bible study, a sermon, go into someone's house to encourage them in the Lord. What is the goal there? For them to like me as a teacher? No. Then to not hate me as a teacher? No. The goal there is that I would leave with them appreciating or understanding the truth more and more. Sometimes, sadly, Think about this culturally, contextually. Sometimes, sadly, we see too many leaders in the church who are people-pleasing, even at the cost of truth. We, we see too often where leaders in the church are too worried about being seen as right or too worried about seen as not wrong and avoid defending the truth and what it is and what the Bible says about it. I think one of the most comforting things, I said this last week, but one of the most comforting things we can take away from First Timothy and other parts of the Bible is that there is a truth that you and I can hold on to. And the same way that you could say there is a Christ, a Messiah, a Son of God, whom we can believe in for the salvation of our souls, we can also say that truth comes from Him. There is a truth. There is right doctrine. There is sound theology. There are correct words. And you and I ought to spend the rest of our lives aiming to understand what those things are. And push false teachers to that truth, which is love. Gospel persuasion is love. So Paul is telling Timothy that the goal of confrontation, grounded in the truth, is actually persuading false teachers to the gospel. I don't know if you've ever had an argument with anyone. Who's ever had an argument with anyone, right? Sometimes you can get so caught up in an argument that all you want to do is win the argument. You know, the house might be on fire, and you're trying to tell them the house is on fire, and then through that argumentation, you might go into a tailspin of, no, I actually like the pool in the backyard. You're missing the, the house is on fire. In the same way, we might talk about doctrine or theology or what the scriptures say, and too often we might try to win an argument or avoid an argument rather than actually going after what do the scriptures say about God and his glory. Grounded in the truth, we are to persuade our own hearts, which can very often go towards waywardness, or we're to persuade false teachers with what? Not a win, not a loss, but with the gospel. Paul says this also in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. You can turn there. You don't have to. I'm just going to read it real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, where it says, And the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong." With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may give them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of truth, and that they may come to their senses 
and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to this will. I hope you see the, the general thrust of, of that text there, that, that someone who is in a teaching position ought to be not quarrelsome, but also be clear. And when they might be wrong in a teaching position, the same way that I apparently was wrong about the limit doesn't exist, the limit does exist, apparently, to whomever math teacher told me that, but I'm to receive that as a right rebuke, right? It may be so with us. May it be so with me, may it be so with you, in our defense of the truth, aiming for the truth, even to when we need to be corrected by brothers and sisters, to where we're drawn to repentance, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now, here's what these two texts are saying, our text in 1 Timothy, but also a correlating text in 2 Timothy. In our defense of truth, in our defense of truth, that God would grant repentance to those who are in false teachers. I think it's easy to see Paul, who's just an aggressive person. You kind of got to love him. Like, wouldn't he be fun to just watch in a courtroom, on a ball field, at a dance? Like, that guy just goes all in wherever he is. And he's saying, be strong, correct those who are wrong, rebuke them, go up to them, but with the hope that they would be brought back to love. He's not given a call here to kill everyone that is outside of our camp and how we read it. That they would see their heirs that they would change because of what the Bible says. He held out hope that if their error was held out to them, they'd repent. So he tells them, he tells Timothy, that the goal of your rebuke, the, re- the goal of your command or instruction is love to them. And that's not to say that Paul treated false teachers with kid gloves. He, he certainly didn't. You can read other things that Paul said. He did not treat people with kid gloves. In fact, the difference between dealing harshly with false teachers versus passively dealing with them, we see in the Paul's own scriptural letters, is that the goal of our instruction would be in love, seems to be whether that false teachers would be correctable. If they seem to have a, a spirit of repentance or correction, you, you know, you treat them differently versus if they would just knock you over and turn around. After those people, he would say, give them over to the snare of the devil or put them outside of the camp completely. Those who repented when admonished are those who come to their senses, who escape what Paul talks about in 2 Timothy. Those who don't repent, those who aren't correctable are those who suffer a shipwreck to those who, who are in the faith that First Timothy and Second Timothy talk about. So we've got to be careful. We've got to hold out hope that those who teach in error would be corrected by the Spirit of God through our persuasiveness, but not with a persuasiveness of the, the knowledge that the world gives us or the wisdom from below, but that we would be persuasive with the knowledge from above that has been given to us in the divine revelation of God's own Word. But we also got to understand that we're to stand them down and perhaps even discipline them when they refuse correction. There are actually two categories of how people are corrected in the Scriptures when it comes to the church operating in a level of what's called church discipline. So there's an individual level, just a, just a normal, common church member when they're in unrepentant sin, when they're openly in unrepentant sin. The church, all of us, is called to actually, what the Scriptures say, is put them out of membership. Because we, we, have a, we have a reputation to keep. Not our reputation. We have God's reputation to keep. And if they're denying God through their unrepentance, which is what unrepentance is, it's a denial of God's work in your own life, it's the church, not me, not three-fourths of the elders, not a certain segment of the population, but the church itself is to say, you, unrepenter, are not to be known as one of us. We'll still come to you. We'll still talk to you. But there's another level of, of how to treat false teachers in a church. Those who are, who are called to teach God's Word 
to the congregation, those who are called to disciple through a preaching and teaching form of care, they're to be corrected, secondly, also by the church. It would be the church who, who goes up, not just a strong man, a church who goes up to a false teacher and actually removes them from the fold. So this is heavy. I understand this, that there is this uh, level of uh, intimate aggression of how we should operate within the level of false teaching. And we see false teaching all the time. So I, I had a couple of people last week say, man, you, you talked about false teaching last week, but you never mentioned any names. And I don't want to because the names might seem endless. But there, I do want to kind of highlight just briefly several major movements. It, it seems like it's going decade by decade, but it, it, I know that's I know it's way more complicated than that, but there, there have been different movements in the last, I don't know, 50 or 60 years where, where we see false teaching happening in the church where actually the gospel is the purifying effect of that. You might think of the, the 1980s, which was just this giant self-esteem movement. It, it was all about you feeling happy in the context of the church. That was the goal. Whatever we can do to make you feel happy here is the goal of our church, where in reality, it's the gospel, not not maybe our song or a liturgy, it's the gospel itself that gives you esteem because you've been remade. Or you may think of the 1990s, the self-made movement. I have overcome. I have achieved this. I have persevered. I have grown to understand the Lord more and more. The self-made movement, where in reality, it's the gospel that actually changes people. Just take out the I and replace it with God, and that's the movement that God wants to give the church. Or you think of the 2000s, the self-help movement which I felt like I was not born and bred in within the church, but also that was just common around us, the self-help movement where the church is basically to take you, you limping, sad soul, and to give you a crutch. And now you can really serve the Lord, when in reality, the, the self-help movement it ought to be overpowered by God's Spirit as being the one who's guiding you and directing you, not to be confused with man-made devices, but God's Spirit is the one who's helping you. Or the 2010s where the goal is for you to believe in yourself. If you can believe it, you can achieve it. Or if you can do certain things through religious practices, then you can move mountains or achieve anything. If you pray a certain prayer, or if you say a certain phrase from the Old Testament, then you can become what you've only thought or imagined. Whereas reality, what the gospel says is believe in God as your only hope and allow Him to make you new. Or finally, the 2020s, we're three years in, where this movement seems to just be self-love. Whatever you are, however you think you were born, whatever someone tells you about yourself, what the most important thing is, is that you love yourself. Because if you don't love yourself, how is God ever going to love you? If you don't love yourself, how is your husband ever going to love you? If you don't love yourself, then no one will ever love you, when in reality, where it's the exaltation in the turning from yourself to the fulfillment of Christ instead. The goal is not for us to love ourselves, but to recognize that in Christ we are loved, and that is our identity. So what do we do with false teaching like this for the last five decades? You run toward it. You speak to it. You show it truth. You preach to it from the Word, and you pray that God would deliver air and give answers. That's what love looks like. A, a pure heart, one that's been washed by the Spirit and regeneration, will preach the love of Christ. A good conscience, freely walking in the deeds of the Spirit, will preach Christ. A sincere faith that's trusting in Jesus alone for salvation, that will be the gospel message that goes after false teaching. That's the aim of the charge. 
seeking to persuade by the gospel for the gospel's proclamation, seeking to persuade even through confrontation for the exaltation of the Son. So when we say things that are wrong about the gospel, may we have repentance in correcting our own message in accordance with the gospel truth. And when others find themselves in error against the gospel, may we go towards them for the goal of them being rooted back again in love. That's the loving thing is to be rooted again in love. I spoke briefly to to those who last week who are in or aspire to go into, or I would have you aspire to go into ministry. Be sure along the way to make yourself fully available to godly teaching and godly correction. One of the hardest things that I think we ever encounter, for those of you who've ever played sports or in in sports, one of the hardest things, and and maybe it's in the arts too, is, is what's called film review where the agony of waking up on a Saturday morning after a Friday night football game and and having slow motion, millisecond by millisecond examination of how wrong you were the night before. What's the goal of that? So you look look like a moron in front of all your teammates? No, because there's a game next week where we want to correct ourselves so that we can play better and better in the same way that those of us who are in ministry or those of us who minister commonly to others around us Sometimes we say things that aren't helpful. Sometimes, horribly, we say things that are wrong, and we should receive correction in order to say things right next time. Now, Timothy is helpful. These, these books of, uh, that were written to Timothy are helpful in admonishing those who aspire to the discipleship pursuit of leading others in holy living. Let those others, it says, see your progress. Let those others see your progress. A former pastor and preacher named Timothy Keller in New York City uh, said one of the, uh, who was possibly one of the most impactful preachers in the last 30 years, has said numerous times that one thing in ministry that he's very thankful for is that the first 10 years of his preaching were not recorded. And he trusts the Lord to do whatever with those sermons only the Lord would desire to do. Uh, he said, my first 10 years of preaching were horrible, and I hope no one listened. Uh, my first sermon uh, when I was in college at the church I was attending was uh, not great, 57 minutes long, and I think a little off the point of what the text was about. Uh, this is my 170th sermon at Crosspoint, and uh, maybe around 200th of all time in my life. Uh, I'm thankful for the saints who've, who've sent me the email, though hard to read, <laughs> or have grabbed a shoulder afterwards and have said, yeah, I think you've got the text here wrong or you've missed the point of this passage. Not like, I wish you would have said this, or I wish it was like this, or man, things were great in the past, or man, things should be better in the future, but, but gospel clarity, which is the loving thing to do. So when it comes to our teaching, it's not our thoughts that are to be lifted up, but the truth coming from God's thoughts, given to us by his declared words, which are to be made most known. And when they're not by others, we're to confront for persuasion. And when they're not by us, we're to, or when they're made by us, we're to receive the rebuke with humility. And, and may God grant a response of the pursuit of progress in our pulpits and in our classrooms and on your couches at home when you're, when you're telling your kid about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and you might go to bed thinking, what, what was I talking about? And thank goodness they're three and they, they aren't even paying attention, but go after it the next day. And now third for us this morning, what do we do with false teachers? What do we do with false teachers? We correct them. We seek to persuade them. But third here, we seek to understand what's really going on, or we understand them. Look at verses 6 and 7. 
Paul, Paul says this in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. For some, strain from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they are saying or the matters of which they make confident assertions. I think verses 6 and 7 describe not those uh, teachers who repent of their error, but those who continue on in their fruitless endeavors, those who continue in it and persist in it. They've turned aside to fruitful discussion and strayed from things. Paul says where their false teaching comes from is in verse 6. Paul says that men stray away from these things, have turned aside, strained from these things. That's the actual spark of their error. What is wrong with what they're teaching? It's not their personality. It's not their build. It's not their pedigree. It's not that, you know, in reality, we just don't like them. It's that they've actually strayed from the gospel. And this isn't a homiletical thing. This isn't about style. It's about the content of their message. It's strayed from the narrow path of the gospel message. Paul says that some stray from these things that they have turned aside. And I think it's pretty clear here in the text. These things refer to the sources of or the foundation of love. That's in verse 5. This is a key connection. You got to see it. They've, they strayed from a pure heart. They've strayed from a good conscience. And they've strayed from a sincere faith. Now, false teaching. And I think this applies to all of us at this point. This text is not just about those who are in the ministry formally, but this is about all of us. The key connection here is that false teaching grows out of a heart that is not pure, out of a conscience that is not good, out of a faith that is not sincere. I would imagine that a lot of you have not gotten everything right on a multiple test, multiple choice test, or a fill in the blank. You know, you got a math problem wrong. You didn't show your homework like you should have. You didn't know what year the country was founded. And was that because you didn't have sincere faith? Is that because you were just a bad guy and you didn't know better? Well, that's, we often think of that's the pursuit of the Christian life. That, that's different than what is happening here. The strain from the gospel is actually evidence that you don't know the gospel. Strain from the gospel actually shows that there's something darker, maybe sadly more sinister happening in your heart to where you then go justify it with false teaching. I think it's interesting and kind of phenomenal to think about that another book in the Bible called Second Peter, written by Peter, he actually shows that there is a consistent parallel between false teachers and sexual sin. That there, there's something happening out here that actually shows something that you and I may not see, but there's something wicked going on. And that's actually a pattern throughout all of the scriptures. False teachers, what is happening? Well, I'm not saying it's because of some kind of sin in the past, but there's something darker and deeper going on to where we can create these silly myths or we can get into this argument of endless genealogies. But friend, what we really need to talk about is your unrepentant pornography. You know, I don't care how many names you know in the Bible if you don't believe in God. And if you believe in God, then you'll pursue truth in that. False teaching grows out of a heart that is not pure, out of conscience that is not good, out of a faith that is not sincere. You see that. In other words, false teaching comes from a failure of spiritual character. It's not merely a failure of the mind. It's a failure of the heart. This is how you know the difference between a young man who's correctable and one who's not. If there's a failure of heart, they don't desire to be corrected. A person I mentioned earlier and a very famous preacher uh, once said 15 years ago, I remember him saying it, he said, the biggest obstacle against revival and repentance in the church, and he's talking in the context of a major city, is fornication. The biggest obstacle against repentance is fornication. 
Now, that's his context. It could be different in other contexts. He said, almost all singles outside of the church and so many singles inside of the church are sleeping with one another. And he went on to illustrate this point by using a college pastor who uses a tactic whenever he visits people who come home from school. He'd he'd maybe take them out to lunch or maybe catch up with them over coffee, and he'd ask about the state of their own spiritual lives, and and far too many often have, have hemmed and hawed and gone away off to the university, and they start talking about new doubts that they have. Or maybe different philosophies have been presented to them that they didn't really ha- have an understanding of, and so that sent them into almost a spiritual spiral, or their disciplines have changed. And for those who kind of nudge into something, saying that they have doubts and are even, even many ways, are, are swerving off the path or are veering from the faith. And so he would always just ask them. He would let them open up, explain briefly about how now they're having new found doubts with what's going on. And he would ask them a simple question. All right, so who have you been sleeping with? And what he found again and again and again, I'm not saying this is the black and white point for everyone, what he, what he found again and again is there was, a, there was a root unrepentant sin that they would then try to cover up with endless myths and genealogies you see here in this text. Because I, I, I don't want to solve this, so I want to talk about this over here. Or, or maybe this is so narrow and so hard that I want to I open myself up to what else is out there. And the students would always say, how'd you know? And he said, it was pretty easy to bet that when a college student comes home, one who'd previously expressed faith or comes home doubting his or her own faith, whatever, education, philosophy, whatever, there's a prior issue of a troubled conscience going on. Oftentimes they've slipped into sexual immorality and they've looked for reasons to deny what their conscience is telling them is wrong. And, and to do that, they have to raise the question, has God really said that he'll satisfy me no matter what? Friends, remember what happened in the garden? They had everything, and it had to have been so great. They had everything, and all it took was a, did God really say to cause the doubt, the guilty conscience? Here's what I've come to see again and again and again. I'm beyond the age where people I've grown up with have left the faith I'm beyond the age where friends that I grew up with leave their spouses. I'm beyond the age where friends dive deep into alcoholism and drug abuse and incarceration. Here's what I see. It's, it's not about the knowledge that they know or don't know. It's sadly, so sadly, the justification that they pursue because of the harassing, besetting, attacking sin in their heart. What do you do with someone who's drowning? You lift them out of the water. What do you do with a heart that is overwhelmed by the world and its darkness and harshness? You lift it up to the love of the gospel and say, friend, you are completely going after a mirage in the wilderness. Go back to the fortress that you once believed in. Whatever sin is pursued, and look at the list that is to be revealed in verses 9 through 11. Rebellious, lawless, ungodly, sinners, unholy, those who kill their fathers or mothers, murderers, sexually immoral persons, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to false teaching, whatever sin is pursued, what happens is a lack of true God-focused love 
which comes from a good conscience, not knowledge, a pure heart, not moral decency, a sincere faith, not just religious obedience. What these false teachers are doing in verse 4 is actually teaching, they're, they're teaching that Christianity in the truth is about a, a knowledgeable use of the law. You might think of it like them teaching moral instruction instead of what the law in part is aiming to do, pursuing transforming grace and mercy at the law. Part of what the law does in the Old Testament is to say to us, I cannot follow God. I need God to drag me along instead of creating more rules if you just did this. A pruning from the inside rather than a covering from the outside. The, the gospel message is a, is a regenerating pruning of the heart to be made new in Christ rather than covering up and adding stuff on top of it. The, the heading is understanding false teachers, and here's why. Rational arguments will not break through their head. I mean, how many times have we been frustrated with arguing with someone and it just won't get in their minds? What's needed is for God to actually penetrate their heart and captivate their soul to repentance from, from strange teaching and to a faith and belief in teaching, speaking, and preaching of his unpolluted truth. So we need to understand where they are. We need to understand what's really happening here. We're, we're not against flesh and blood. We're, we're really against the principality and powers that are ruling the world when we come across false teaching. That, that That'll change how you confront them, won't it? If you, if you understand that the spiritual attack that is going on in the church or in the outside world, that, that'll change the way you go up to someone. Instead of saying, you fool, you might go up to them and say, look at this. What does this say? I'm hearing you say this, but what does this say? Why, why can't we reconcile those two? That'll change how you seek to persuade them because you understand what's happening and the root of what's at stake. All right, now look quickly at... Verse 7, verse 7 in many ways will serve as an intro to verse 8, which God willing will happen next week. And it, but look, this is a, a unique way to start unpacking what the law actually is supposed to do in verse 8. It says in verse 7 that these false teachers want to be teachers of the law, even though, and I, I love this, only, only Paul can talk like this. He basically says they want to be teachers of the law, even though they have no idea what they're talking about. The greatest fear in our, all of our lives is to start talking and for someone to say, you have no idea what you're talking about. And he's saying, that's what's happening inside this church. They're saying words. They're using the scriptures. They're, they're using, you know, four-syllable words and even hyphenated texts. And he's saying, they don't know what they're talking about. They're not reading the scriptures as they're supposed to be reading the scriptures. So here's the takeaway. Don't think false teachers won't use the Bible. Don't think that false teachers won't use what I like to call Christianese language. Well, that sounds really good. He said this or they said that. And in many ways, they're effective in their false teaching because they use scriptural language or because they use a verse, even though it's out of context. They're effective because they might use the Bible. But what they're doing is actually using it in a way that totally contradicts what it's intended to be used for. They're reading the Bible. They're just not reading it lawfully, which to our case, it's very helpful that not only Jesus did he arrive on the scene to save us from our sins, but he also arrived on the scenes in order to tell us how we ought to see the Father who he is now incarnate.
These people that Timothy were facing, they were into made-up stories and speculations about genealogical lists from Moses' work, but the point was they were misusing the Scriptures and how it's clearly laid out. And one of, the, one of the joys is not only us as Christians can we recognize that there is truth, there is sound doctrine, there is right theology, but, but the Scriptures are what it's called as clear. We can really read the Scriptures to understand who God is. These people that he was facing were misusing things. And so Paul tells Timothy, it's your job to confront, it's your job to persuade, it's your job to understand what's going on. So let me, let me conclude with this. A couple of thoughts here for application. I think it's for all of us, collectively and individually. Are you, are you willing, I think from just this passage, are you willing to refute those who contradict God? It's not just a question for elders, it's, this is a question for the church. Remember last week about the danger of just not worrying about things that might bring conflict because I just want to love this way or that way. But are you willing to refute those? Do you know the Scriptures in such a way that you can go, I don't think it says that? Are you willing to defend those who are willing to go out on a limb to defend truth against error? Are you willing to place yourself under or to place over someone else the church's role and discipline to bear upon false teachers who will not repent? That's a congregational duty. And at the end of the day, faithful pastors need faithful church members to defend church or to f- defend truth. Are you willing to pray for those who oppose the truth? It becomes easy to watch a YouTube clip and to go, I cannot believe thousands of people go to that person's church. I can't believe that guy convinced 40 people to go to whatever context they're in far away. But are you willing to pray, not against that man, but for that man to come back to the truth that he's trying to expose? Those who teach strange doctrine. And then lastly, are, are you aware where false teaching comes from? It's not a boogeyman outside of the church. Don't think about others, but think about yourself. Where does false teaching come from in my own heart? How often do we lie to ourselves about truth? Whether this, you teach false doctrine or come under the sway of false doctrine, it's, it's not about what you know, it's about who you love. If your heart fixates on evil or sin, your brain will will manufacture doctrines that you need to continue in your sin. So the call for us is to cultivate a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith, where those are the seedbeds of love. Those are the foundations of the fruits of the Spirit. Those are the affections from coming under the sway of false doctrine. Friends, we got to recognize that what is at stake in our own hearts is either joy or misery. And if we want a heart that is continually set on joy, then we're to go back regularly to the fountain of truth. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that it is you who we can go to and truth to teach us about your ways and your glory. We pray that you would encourage us as we pursue you as a church and individually, that we would aim to have our hearts and our minds set on you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to move us into participating together of what is called the Lord's Supper, where we see in the scriptures that on the night before Jesus was crucified, he, he ate dinner with his closest friends, his disciples. And as they were eating, he gave them uh, what we would see as a picture or a sign of the gospel. And what Jesus did at the Last Supper was he, he took bread and he took wine, he divided the bread, and he passed around the wine, and he said, this is to be seen as a meal. In part, you should, you should enjoy this now. 
And then he would later say that, that Christians ought to do this regularly because there will be a time where he'll come and actually have this meal again. And he tells Christians through the scriptures that we should be participating in that kind of meal in the same way that these disciples did on the night before he died. So we believe that as Christians, we should regularly observe what's called the Lord's Supper because in many ways, but in one in particular, it actually points us to that the greatest hope that we can have for the forgiveness of our sins. It points us to a, a picture, a glorious sign of Christ's death where he was crucified and his love was poured out as wrath was poured out on him. At his death, he was killed for us. His blood was shed for us, assuring salvation for believers. So if you're here today and you're wondering, is this meal for you? If you're a repentant believer in Christ Jesus, rest assured, this is the meal for you. And I want to encourage you that when, when the time comes to come up and take those, those tiny little elements that symbolize and showcase something so great that has happened in your life. And if you know that you're not a believer in Jesus, I want to ask you to actually not participate with us. See this as a catalyst of maybe you thinking about what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be someone, or to be someone who believes in the one who was crucified for forgiven sinners. And for those of you who find yourself in unrepentant sin, I want this to actually not be taken by you as well. Paul warns us in his letters that we shouldn't take this frivolously. So if you find ourselves in unrepentant sin, friend, just stay in your seat. Other people are going to move around, so no one will look at you. But just stay in your seat. Pray right there that God would forgive you of your sins. For those of you who profess to be believers, I, I, I too often, if you come from a different context, too often this has seemed like kind of a sad and somber movement. It should be serious, right? So don't, maybe don't do cartwheels down the aisle. You might hit a lot of people in the way. But you should come to these tables joyfully recognizing all that God has done for you in Christ. This is a reminder and a foretaste of the joy that we have together. Now, in a moment, I'll pray, and then there are tables all around the room, up in the balcony. You can go to any one of those and grab the two cups that are stacked, take them back to your seat together. We'll take them all together. And if you can't get up for whatever reason, don't want to get up for whatever reason, one of our deacons will come down the center aisle, just raise your hand, and they'll bring it to you. But let me pray for us, and then we'll actually go to this meal together and enjoy this sign of God's love for us. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that it is you who did what we could not do for ourselves. It is you who saved us. It is you who holds us. It is you who promises to make all things new, including us in glory. We pray that as, you, that as we approach this table, that you would remind us of your grace and mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.